Thanks be to God for all of you. Welcome. I'm Hannah, and I'm the pastor here. Thanks be to God for middle school teachers teaching at just when we are all the worst person we will ever be. (laughs) Um, My husband was a math teacher, and I remember when he taught ninth grade, he would spend an hour every night going over all of the example math problems he was going to use in class to eliminate any 13s, 3s, anything that could possibly add or multiply to 69, because if that ever happened in class, it would just shut down for 20 minutes. It's just over. It's just done. Um, we, are, we are the most unpredictable versions of ourselves at that time, and we need loving teachers to meet us in our hormonal nonsense. And so we give thanks for Connor and all of the other middle school teachers. Um, we're going to talk about Moses and murder. This is an intriguing story. There is a lot happening. <clears throat> but before we get into that, Um, this has been a full week of things that have happened. And many of them have been um, harmful and painful. And if there's anything we should be doing at church, it should be facing what is happening in our lives together as God um, meets us and holding one another in it and seeing where Jesus might be. And so there's two things that I really wanted to talk about before we get into our main meaning uh, making of the day. Um, And one is the statement made by the president of our country about um, Haitians, Salvadorans, and people of the over 50 nations of Africa, um, which disturbed me on a number of levels. So uh, none of which were the fact that it used the word shit, which I think uh, a lot of people have been naming as the problem, not the problem. Um, Here's the problem. The problem is racism. The problem is the racism that has infected our country and that has taken on new power and boldness in a new time. Um, And the problem is not just that idea of racism, the idea that people are different from one another or less than one another, but that I want us to remember in the conversation in which these things were said, it was a specific and explicit attempt to keep brown and black people out of our country in favor of white people. That's what was happening, right? That was the, it was, um, we should stop letting Haitians and Salvadorans in and get more people from Norway. And um, it would be easy to say, we've moved beyond that, except that we've done that so many times before. From the Chinese Exclusion Act on, the United States history of immigration is a history of one where racism dictates our policy. And I want us to be honest about that And I want us to be honest about the fact that that is against everything that Jesus has ever taught us about what it means to be a human, what it means to be a community, and what it means to be a people of a righteous God. We don't do a thing called the lectionary um, here. For those of you who don't know what it is, the lectionary is a um, a kind of written three-year map of scriptures that most churches in the world go through together, um, where every Sunday, almost every Catholic church, Orthodox church, and many Protestant churches are reading the same scripture every single Sunday. And we don't do that because we like sermon series, um, but the lectionary is great too. Um, And the lectionary passage for this Sunday that millions of Christians are reading together happens to be one where someone says of Jesus, oh him, nothing good can come from Nazareth. Nothing good can come from Nazareth. It is an ancient tactic to say that where we come from is not good enough, that who we are is not good enough. 
and it has always been wrong. <laughs> and it was wrong about Jesus, and it's wrong about us. And I want us to name that for all of the Haitian Salvadorans and African people who are in our church and in this country and in the world, that there is no thing that can make you less worthy or less worthy of dignity than any other human being, but also because a part of our job as Christians is going to be to be clear and honest about this stuff. Because it happened to Jesus, and it's happening to us, and that ain't right. Amen? Amen. Amen. So there's that. <laughs> uh, number two. <laughs> number two. Um, this I, I wanted to talk about, not because we're in the United States, but because we're in a church, um, which is last Sunday. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a nun. I grew up non-religious. Uh, but many folks in this church I know came out of the, <laughs> yeah, not an N-U-N. I have never taken orders. Although every time I wear my collar outside, this is such a Catholic city, somebody asks me if they should be calling me father, which I think is so <laughs> adorable and sweet. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I'm, but many of us in this church I know grew up in the evangelical community, which has offered many gifts, um, but also has its own pains, as any community does. And last Sunday, some of you may have watched as one of the larger churches in our country, um, in the world, <clears throat> uh, one of their pastors who had been a youth pastor in his 20s, um, who had sexually assaulted a 17-year-old girl who was one of the women that he cared for as their youth pastor, um, got up before the church to confess that that had happened. Um, except that what he confessed was that it was wrong because he cheated on his wife not wrong because he was her youth pastor, not wrong because she was 17, not wrong because she didn't know what was happening and had no capacity to say no to it and he had taken her to a field in a car and she had no way to escape. He said that it was wrong because he had cheated on his wife and that he asked for forgiveness and then received a standing ovation from that church. And so many of us, I think, watched that with, with pain and disgust um, and and I think, but I, but I also think a lot of us are still walking around with all of the, the stuff that has taught us to have that response. So I wanted to, to talk about it a little bit because I think some of the reason why people clapped in that church is not because they're people. It's because they have been taught that what Christians are above all other things is forgiving and a people of forgiveness. And I want to say that I think Jesus is a person of forgiveness. And I have seen, I have seen extraordinary, extraordinary capacity for forgiveness in humanity. Um, people who have done truly wrong and horrible things. But it has never come without that person um, mutually, without the person who committed harm admitting truly to the harm that they did and offering to make the amendments for that harm that the victim said they needed not that somebody else in the community said that they needed. Not that somebody else in the community said that they needed. Something that calls itself forgiveness, but is actually a band-aid over the kind of wound that Jesus said he came here to free us from, a wound of pain and mourning and oppression, isn't forgiveness at all. <laughs> it's simply adding further to one another's pain. So if someone has ever told you <laughs> that you have to let go of something that harmed you or something that hurt you because of Jesus loves forgiveness, they were wrong. They were wrong. Jesus is with you in your experience of suffering and harm, and Jesus wants safety for all of us. I also want to say, um, as someone who's in a pastoral role, uh, 
in this place especially, right, we have a very human conception of the pastor, and I am a human, and I am flawed, and I make mistakes all the time, but I still recognize that there are ways in which the things that I say and the things that I do, people react to differently because I got a rev in front of my name, right? And I consider that to be a sacred trust, the most sacred trust I've ever been offered, and I try every minute to make sure that I never abuse that. And I see the same in all of you who are teachers, who are therapists, who are lawyers, who are doctors, who are bosses and manage people. Um, anytime you have that extra piece of authority over someone, it's a sacred trust that we are given um, that can do great harm if we're not aware of the ways in which we impact other people. And um, to violate that, to violate that is not only against the kind of God who God is, but it can be incredibly confusing. And so I know that we've talked before, if any of you have experienced sexual violation or harassment or abuse or harm of any kind, um, I, want, I am a person and I want this to be a place where you can be honest about that. We will believe you, we will support you, it is not your fault. But I wanna additionally say, if you've ever <laughs> felt like, well I said yes, but your yes wasn't real because of the person who asked you to say it, that is harm and that is violation and that should never have happened to you. And it has happened in far too many of our churches. And I want the church to confess that and I want us to confess that and if that's our experience or that's the experience of our loved ones, I want us to respond as we should, which is with care and compassion and whatever a victim says that they need. Amen? Okay. So it was a big week. <laughs> a lot of things happened, but we are here together. We are here in this time. We are here for one another. And there's still a weird story about Moses murdering a guy that we really want to work through together. Okay? So uh, if you would pray with me. God of grace and mercy. God of power and might. God who is with us in our hardest hours. God who is with us in our seeking of healing and wholeness and liberation together. We love you, and we know that you love us. We ask that you would meet us in every moment, in every day, in every month, in every hour, to shape our words and shape our actions, that they might be loving towards the, uh, one another. And if in any moment they aren't, if our, the words that come out of our mouth today are harmful or hurtful, we ask that you would help us to notice, to make amends, and to start over again tomorrow, because you are a God of second chances and there was always more to your story. Amen. Uh, how many of you have read a book or a blog post or watched a TV show in the last five to 10 years that had to do with getting happiness, right? Like five life hacks for a happier morning or the happiness project or the, right? Like the one meditation practice that will save your life. Um, it's a big thing. I'm almost I would say a huge portion of the nonfiction market of the last decade has been these various sort of solutions to happiness. Get the perfect morning, right? The morning routine, that'll set you straight. Uh, get the perfect uh, food, diet is big, right? And the great diet will make you happy. We are all pursuers and seekers of happiness in this day and in this time, um, and particularly right in this country where a founding document says that the pursuit of happiness is a part of our identity as people. Um, turns out that's just one of many things that was wrong about, but um, 
we pursue happiness. And I think in part we pursue happiness because it feels like it's this moment in time where for the first time that might actually be possible, right? Like standards of living have raised, we can get the good food and we can have the good life and we can do the good things and find the right person and the right job and the right whatever. Um, but it turns out that this pursuit of happiness, this treadmill of happiness that we're on uh, isn't serving us very well <laughs> and is rarely bringing any of us any happiness. Uh, this month's whole sermon series is going to be based uh, on the life of Moses 1 and then 2 on this book called The Power of Meaning or The, the uh, Pursuit of Meaning, depending on which edition you buy, by Emily Esfahani Smith, who uh, was a reporter but also um, was on the same treadmill as all of us, pursuing happiness, right? If I find the right meal, if I take the right trip, if I find the right person, I will be happy. And she kept on getting the thing and then not being happy. <laughs> and she was confused about why that kept happening. And so she's a person who really, really wants answers to questions because she responded to that by going to get a PhD in positive psychology <laughs> and found that actually um, in surveys across groups, genders, nations, personalities, people who report a lot of moments of happiness, so a lot of moments of feeling satisfied or feeling like they got what they wanted, um, also report higher rates of depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and alienation. They have the, more of these moments creating anything lasting. <laughs> these moments of happiness aren't giving us what we thought they would, which is perma-happiness. We're looking for the sort of undergirding happiness we aren't getting from the moments of happiness. So what does give us that kind of consistent, long-term freedom from anxiety and depression that we're looking for? Turns out it's not happiness, it's meaning. It's meaning. And what's the difference between happiness and meaning? So most of the, the questions about happiness are um, something that has happened to me that made me momentarily satisfied. Questions about meaning are when I participated in something bigger than myself and felt like I was contributing. When I felt like I was contributing to a person or the larger world, um, when we're connected, those are all meaning moments. And the meaning moments, it turns out, are what lead to broader and more long-term psychological health, <laughs> are what lead to actual feelings of long-term happiness. Pursuing happiness doesn't you it. Pursuing meaning does. And she went further and kind of wanted to break it apart and say, what is meaning? Because if I say to you, okay, go out, pursue meaning, that's not necessarily gonna give you a lot more direction than pursue happiness did. Um, what are the building blocks of meaning? And she developed these four pillars, and we're gonna be spending a Sunday on each one. These four pillars of meaning, some of which are um, bigger drivers for some of us than others. There's a little quiz you can take online if you want to. We'll be putting it on our Facebook and in our e-news. Um, the four pillars of meaning, belonging, purpose, storytelling, so creating a coherent narrative of the story of your life, and transcendence, moments of transcendence. Belonging, purpose, storytelling, and transcendence are what she found to be the four pillars of a meaningful life, of pursuing meaning in our life. So we're gonna spend a Sunday talking about each one of those things, and today we're talking about the first one, which it turns out in many ways sets the stage for the others, which is belonging a feeling of belonging. Belonging is something that we need, that is necessary to us. 
So what is belonging? When I hear belonging, um, I think first about belonging to like a group or an identity or a community. Um, and that has a little bit to do with her definition of belonging. That's definitely a way in which we feel belonging. But she actually has a much broader sense of what belonging means. She says that you get feelings of belonging that contribute to a sense of meaning anytime you feel totally seen, validated, and loved intrinsically for who you are. So not for what you do or what you say, but intrinsically for who you are. Anytime you feel seen and validated, or anytime you contribute to somebody else feeling seen, validated, loved intrinsically in who you are. That those kinds of moments are the moments that build up to a feeling of belonging that leads to meaning, that leads to happiness, that leads to you know what we're all looking for. That is what belonging is. So belonging is both when we're a part of a group or a community or an identity that gives us a solid feeling of belonging, but it's also when, you know, yeah, well, well, and also that in these smaller moments of a coworker remembers your coffee order from last week, gets the coffee for you, and says, hey, how's your brother, right? Like, th they might not be a part of a solid community that you see them every single day, but in that moment, in that five minutes, they have made you feel seen and known. They have given you that sense of validation that contributes to your overall sense of belonging. I belong here, I'm seen, I'm necessary. And you need both kinds. And we're gonna talk about this a little bit later, but I think something that is confusing for us about belonging, um, particularly for like this moment in time in this generation, is that we've been fed a lot of cheap forms of belonging, where we think that we belong, but that belonging is actually predicated upon behaving, acting, or talking in a certain way. And so part of us feels like, oh, I belong, like, I belong to that school. Um, it feels like actually a very strong sense of belonging, but really a part of us knows, if I started to talk a different way, if I started to dress a different way, if I started to behave a different way, I'd get kicked out of this belonging. And so it actually is even worse <laughs> than not having belonging at all, because <laughs> it's this constantly risky belonging. Um, so I don't know if any of you watched Mean Girls, right? But um, there's, a, there's a certain kind of really, really intense belonging about being a part of the plastics, right? We all wear pink on Wednesdays. We all never wear sweatpants. We all go shopping together. There's a, there's a really attractive intensity about when you're a part of a group that has that much belonging. But then the danger is, on Wednesday you don't wear pink, you don't get to sit with us, right? Um, it's, it's a risky kind of belonging that isn't real. And so when I talk about belonging, that's not what I'm talking about. And that for so many of us has been the kind of belonging that we've been formed in, that belonging actually feels risky. We're now, we're now sort of like, I don't wanna belong to groups, I'm different, I'm special, right? Because groups have always been such places of harm. So not the kind of belonging I'm talking about. I'm talking about real belonging that is totally about you, you can't do anything to get rid of it, it is about intrinsically who you are, being loved and seen and validated. And it is something that not just we need, it is something that Moses felt a really desperate need for. Um, Moses, it's gonna be really fun, I think, to go through Moses' life this month because Moses has such a rich life and a rich experience and such a varied experience. And a lot of it we've lost because we know the end of the story, right? Um, so for us, it's like, 
Moses saved the people. Moses is the most famous Jewish person ever. Like, Moses must have been awesome, picked by God for an incredible thing. Not how it felt to Moses. Not how it felt to Moses. Moses is constantly um, in a state of worry or frustration or confusion about who he's supposed to be. Um, But we also are offered this really in-depth picture of who Moses is and what his life is like. One of the things I find the most fascinating about the Hebrew Bible, right, is the first book is Genesis. And over Genesis, we cover literally millions of years, right, from like the creation of the universe and the Big Bang to uh, Joseph and his brothers getting into Egypt. And we can forget how quickly it goes through all of that stuff, because at this point, every paragraph of Genesis has been made into like a musical or a novel series or whatever. And so we we feel like there's more content there than there is. Um, But really, it goes quick, right? Like we spend a couple pages with Abraham. We spend a paragraph with Noah. We spend a paragraph on the Tower of Babel that, you know, generation, 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 generation. And then all of a sudden we hit Exodus and it's like time slows down. Time slows down. And we spend four books with one guy. with one guy and his life and his experience. What happened to this one guy and his people and this freedom? And it's about all kinds of themes that live with us forever, but we really get to slow down and look at what is it to be a person? What happens to you over the whole course of that thing? And for Moses, it's complicated. Moses has a really, really complicated sense of identity, belonging, and culture. Anybody ever tells you that, you know, oh, identity politics was invented in the last 40 years, you tell them, you know, hey, have you met Moses? Um, So Moses is born to the Hebrew people, right? He's Jewish in an Egypt that for hundreds of years has no longer respected the Jewish people, has no longer seen the Hebrew people as allies, as immigrants, as people who came voluntarily as they did, but has enslaved the entire people and sees them as less than. And not only sees them as less than, but simultaneously, as so often happens in oppressive and colonized systems, simultaneously sees them as less than, inferior, and as a profound threat, Um, which is a really interesting combination we find with lots of oppressed people, right? You're the worst. Also, you're going to put everything in danger. You're going to put everything at risk. Well, if I'm the worst, how am I going to do that exactly? Um, So Pharaoh has come to the conclusion I have, I have enslaved these people, we have power over them, but they still scare me with how much life and vitality they have, with how much they reproduce, with how much they put into the world. I'm gonna put a stop to them. And so he says, we're gonna kill all the male children. And at first he tells the midwives, but he makes several profound mistakes along the way, one of which is he totally underestimates women, right? He's like, I only need to kill the men. The women, we can stick around as an exploitable labor force. If I kill the men, they'll no longer be able to have life, vitality, growth, service. But the women, um, turns out, have a couple of tools in their back pocket, and they begin to save people. (laughs) Shifra and Pua, these Egyptian midwives who have no affiliation with the Hebrew people but know a wrong when they see it, start lying to the pharaoh, a huge risk that they take in order to save babies, right? Oh, didn't get there in time. Don't know how many babies there were. Must have been all girls, right? So they're tricking pharaoh. Um, And then when the Hebrew people continue to reproduce, Pharaoh says, okay, fine, I'm not gonna count on the midwives anymore because they're not doing my business. All Egyptians, kill any Hebrew child you see. Kill any Hebrew male child you see. And so then the women of the Hebrew people come up with their own sly plans, their own amazing plans, their own forms of resistance that we always find when we are um, in a position of, of less power. 
And Moses, Moses' mother, puts him in a basket of reeds and in a river and puts him downstream to where she knows some of the Egyptian women of wealth and power are. And the daughter of the Pharaoh finds him in the river, finds him in the river and raises him up in the palace. And if any of your families have been formed um, as, as mine has been by adoption, this is actually a super powerful story of an adoptive mother and a biological mother coming together for the health and flourishing of this child. Um, and not only that, but it's a, it's a cross-cultural adoptive mother who clearly cares about her child knowing the culture and the group from which he has come. Because she raises him in the privilege of the palace, she raises him with all that he needs, his clothes and his money, um, but she makes sure that he has a wet nurse who is Hebrew, um, so that he's connected to his community. Turns out it's his mom, thanks to the machinations of his sister. And she makes sure that he knows where he comes from, because when he's a grown man, and here we get to this story, the story we're on today, when he's a grown man, he knows that those are his people. Right? He knows that this is part of, not all of, because he's multicultural, he's bicultural, this is part of where he comes from. But he doesn't really have connections in the community, right? He just knows that it's part of where he comes from. And you, and you get the feeling that it's been on his mind and on his heart, that it's been sort of haunting him in some way. Because the first time that he goes out and sees what's happening to the people that he knows in some way he's related to, he sees a Hebrew person being... Um, uh, violated, hurt unjustly by an overseer who is Egyptian, and he murders that Egyptian and buries him, first looking to make sure that nobody is looking. And in that moment, I think he thinks that he is living into the fullness of his identity as a Hebrew person, right? That by take, taking this act of defense, he's declaring, this is the people that I'm with. He thinks he's solving his identity crisis, right? This is who I am. I'm a part of this group, and in this murder, I will prove it, right? I will show it. But then the next day, two people of the group he thinks he belongs to, that he thinks he has declared for, that he thinks will be his people, are fighting. And when they see him, the only group they've put him into is guy who kills people, <laughs> right? Because they say to him, please don't kill us just because we're fighting. We saw you kill that dude yesterday. They don't see his act as having been this declaration for them, this declaration for his people. They just see him as a guy who kills, and they're scared. And so for Moses, <laughs> I think that rocks his whole boat of who am I? He thought he had made this choice that he had to make. Turns out it didn't even work, right? People aren't seeing him the way that he thought he would be seen. And now he has to run away because he thinks that people are going to arrest him for murder. <laughs> so he runs away to Midian, and his identity crisis is only compounded because the first people he runs into... He does this nice thing for these women at the well. He chases off the shepherds who are bothering them, and their father takes him in. But the women say to their father, an Egyptian has come, right? He's not read racially as a Hebrew. He's not read ethnically as a Hebrew. He's read for the people that he was raised by, that he language he speaks, the name that he comes from. He's read as an Egyptian. Moses, we forget because Moses is now so famous and it's been so long and none of us live in ancient Egypt, but Moses is a very Egyptian name. Many of the pharaohs had names like uh, Ra Moses, Tut Moses, Ankh Moses. It was a name that would begin with the deity they served, the god they served, and then Moses. So he has this Egyptian name, speaking that language. That's how the people are interpreting him. And so at every path along the way, the way that Moses sees himself, the way that other people see him, who he belongs to, 
it varies and it's confusing and it doesn't feel like solid ground that he can walk on, right? He just doesn't know. <laughs> um, but you gotta live. You gotta live, even in the midst of an identity crisis, as so many of us know. And so he's found this place that isn't really either Egyptian or Hebrew, so he's kind of found an outside place that won't demand of him that he be either. And he finds a father-in-law who is kind to him, who says, hey, come stay with us, right? Come be with us. You seem like a good dude. Come, come be a part of the family. And he gets married, and he starts to have that sense of belonging. He starts to shepherd. He starts to be with the family. Um, but even still, his first child is born, and he names that child alien born in a foreign land, <laughs> right? It's, it's just so clear that, like, this is... And this is all that he's dealing with. <laughs> this is what he's trying to figure out. Where do I belong? Where do I belong? And who do I belong to? And it has starts to get healed when his Ruel or Jethro, he's called different things in different portions of the Bible. We all have nicknames and, you know. Um, it starts to be eased when that family shows him a sense of belonging, but it's not really eased. He doesn't really have a sense of where he goes until later in the next chapter he has this extraordinary encounter you may have heard of with a burning bush and with God, <laughs> right? Um, where there's a bush burning but not consumed, and Moses, it says, takes time to look at it closely, and then somehow that time is how God knows that, like, uh, Moses is the, the guy, and says to Moses um, what I think most of us sort of desperately wish would happen, right? Like, how much money would you pay for God to just appear to you and be like, this is who you are, this is the plan, here's your purpose, go here, do this, right? Like, how happy would you be? All the answers solved, right? God appears before you and says, this is the deal, do this. I, I feel like, I'm probably fooling myself, right? I probably would respond just like most, I feel like that would be awesome. That would provide a lot of clarity in my life. Um, but for Moses, who has been seeking clarity the whole time, who has been seeking identity the whole time, God appears to him and says, here's your job, here's what you're going to do, here's your purpose in life. And Moses says, mm, doesn't sound like me, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, I don't know if that matches my MBTI. I don't know if that matches my strengths finder. Um, doesn't sound like me, uh, right? Like, doesn't sound, doesn't sound like me. And, uh, and God is like, no. I'm pretty sure, right? Like, God, I know that I, I meant it, wasn't confused, knew what I meant, knew what I meant, knew, that it, knew what I want you to do. And Moses continues to resist, and it's a long conversation. If anyone has ever told you that you're not allowed to argue with God, you just, like, tell them about Jacob and Moses because they argue with God all the freaking time. Um, and Moses cannot be convinced. And, and a part of it, I think is that Moses is a classic, like, doesn't want to do it, right? Generally, when God asks you to do something, it's going to be really hard, and the prophets of the Bible generally know that and are generally resistant to it. Part of it's the classic prophet thing, but part of it is, I think, this identity crisis he's been carrying around. He's really scared. He's really scared. You want me to go back to this people who don't really think of me as a part of them, who I'm not sure I'm a part of them, and I'm the guy? Really? And he even says to God, what if I go back and tell them this stuff that you just told me, and they say, prove it. What's the name of our God? What do I do then? And part of that is Moses being a little sneaky, um, because in ancient times, knowing the name of something was to have great power over it, 
right? So part of it is he's like, maybe if I get a poker chip on God, like I can cash it in when I need it, you know? Um, he, he wants to know the name of God so that he can use it at some point. Um, and part of it, I think, is his own conflict about names. <laughs> what does our name mean about who we are? What does our name mean about where we belong? What does our name mean about who belongs to us? And part of it is I think that he's genuinely scared, <laughs> that he'll go back with this big mission, having changed his whole life, left the only place where he truly felt at home, and then the people are going to be like, nah, dude, you're not one of us. Yeah. So all these things are going on in him at once, and God's response is, I am who I am. I am who I am. He doesn't give him a Rumpelstiltskin magic name. He doesn't give him a shibboleth magic word to prove to the Hebrew people that he is who he says he is. He says the truth about God, which is I am who I am. There is none other like me, and I am total. And a big part of that is a statement about who God is. God is different and wild <laughs> and not understandable to us. And if we ever find ourselves trying to put fences around understanding God, trying to put limits or words or sentences that sum up who God is, we are on the wrong track because God is who God is and we're not going to get a handle on it. But part of it is also God saying, I am who I am and I have appeared to you. That's enough. I am who I am and I have loved you, and that is enough. I am who I am, and I knew you in the womb, and made you, and put you in the bulrushes, and I have watched you, and I have cared for you, and I am with you, and that is enough. And it doesn't fix everything for Moses. Throughout his life, he continues to to have moments where he feels like, oh, I really shouldn't be doing this, <laughs> or oh, I wish I didn't have to, or oh, this is really hard. But that moment where God says to him, I am who I am. You are who you are. I have chosen you, Moses. That moment is enough to get him to go to another country, to take on the most powerful person there, and to believe that there is a place and a people to whom he belongs not because he feels like it and not because it's easy, but because God has said so. If you belong to me, then you belong anywhere. If you belong to me, then you are right just as you are, and you don't need to change before you do great things, and you don't need to change before you love yourself, and you don't need to change before you love me. I am who I am, and I have chosen you. And just like Moses never gets his sense of belonging from his name or from the people around him, but gets a sense of belonging from God, so can we. And we need it. We need it. It's hard walking around in a world where we feel out of touch and out of belonging so much of the time. But God has said to us already, and God continues to say to us, when you feel like you belong nowhere, you belong to me. I love you, I made you, you are extraordinary, I am with you. There is nothing you can do to not belong to me and with me. Even in the hard moments, God says to us, this is the point of Jesus. There is nothing you can do. You can kill me and you will not lose my love for you. You will not lose my passion for you. You will not lose that you belong to me. And it's when we sit in that, when we are centered in that, when we know that, that God is who God is and we belong to God, 
that we can start to have real belonging among us <laughs> and start to build those moments of belonging for ourselves and for others. It's been so interesting to read about belonging this week because um, belonging is actually a big part of how we've thought of ourselves as Urban Village Church for a long time. There are these theories of how different church communities work, right? And one of them is that some church communities are believe, behave, belong communities. They think that that's the path that you go along to appropriately follow God, to appropriately be enveloped by God, right? That the first thing that happens is that somebody offers you an opportunity to convert. They offer you the sinner's prayer, or they offer you a relationship with Jesus, or the first Bible you ever open, and through that, you start to believe the right things. And if you start to believe the right things, then you can start to do the right things, right? Have the right kinds of relationships, eat the right kinds of food, avoid the right kinds of you know, drugs or whatever. Like you, you start to behave the right way. Believe, behave, and then once you're believing right and behaving right, then you get the prize of belonging. Then you get to belong to the church. Then you become a member, then you become a leader, then you have ascended to the peak where you get to belong to this community of people who all believe and behave the right way. On Wednesdays, they all wear pink, right? Um, and that, it works because it's really intense. Once you belong to a community like that, that feels like a really rare gift, and so it feels like something big you'd have to be giving up, and so you don't. But it's not real, because it's always based on you behaving a certain way. We at UVC have always called ourselves the opposite, that we are a belong, behave, believe church, that we think that if we do belong first, if we say no matter who you are, no matter what you've done or what you're doing now or what you say or how you do, you belong here. We will do the work to make this community a place for you if it isn't already. You belong first. It's that sense of belonging that will allow our behavior to change, that will allow us to become maybe more loving towards one another once we can be more loving of ourselves. <laughs> maybe more loving of God once we can be more loving of ourselves. And that maybe then we would really believe all the things that Jesus said if we experienced them with one another. And that even if you never behave or believe those things, you will still belong here. And we don't do that um, because it's a strategic way to build a community. We do that because that is what God did for us. And so, of course, that's what the church should do for everyone. What God has said to us is we belong first. Before and in front of anything, we belong to a God who loves us and is our parent and is our protector and is our lover and friend. And so the church has to follow that lesson and be a belonging first community where we say to others, you belong where we say to ourselves, I belong. Where we say to all, there is a place where we can belong. And yes, the work will be harder because we're different. It is harder to feel belonging and to make belonging when we all speak different languages and wear different colors on Wednesday than when the rules are set out for us, right? There's some work involved in being a belonging first community because we're different from each other. But then once we do the work, the kind of belonging we feel is the kind of belonging that you never lose, the kind of belonging that you're never worried about being taken away from you, because you know 
that God loves you, we love you, and that love is real and unconditional and forever, 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 amen. So we are a belonging first community. And it's not always easy, but because we belong to a belonging first God, it is possible. So let's be people who live like that. <laughs> this day, this week, this month, this year, and see how our belonging changes us. Amen? Amen. Amen.